Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse. I'm Jesse. I'm Josh. And this is a podcast all about saving the best and burning the rest. I know you really wanted me to follow you there with a song, but I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to yep. do that. My, expectation, my expectations were high, and now my disappointment is high as well. So thanks, Jesse. No, I'm kidding. No, it's fine. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I, I just, I've got a song, you know. Today, it's, the, it's warmed up again in Sydney. I'm looking outside. There's sheep for some reason, and it's just a good day. But it's not just a good day because of the weather. It's a good day because we've got good company today. That's so true. Um, we are very, very lucky to once again talk to friend of the show, uh, Mr. Mr. Nathan Brown. Thank you very much for joining us, Nathan. Cool. And I think they should be warned that last time I was a guest on this show was the week before <laughs> it died. You killed it. After after I was on the show, you took it out the back and you put it down. <laughs> so that doesn't but, bode well for today. Well, but luckily, luckily, last time we got some sort of I don't know shock thing, and w- maybe it was the power of God that resurrected the show. So there's always hope, even if it does die, it will rise again. That's that's. <laughs> That's not foreshadowing, I hope, but anyway. I like to think that the show wasn't dead. It was just having a well-deserved nap. A long, a long nap. (laughs) I still took it somewhat personally that you felt, yeah. Either we've reached the pinnacle or we've reached the absolute depths that this is going to. Time to stop. It's the sleep before the resurrection. (laughs) Very biblical. Yeah, no, I... um, but good to be back. It's great Thanks. to have you, and uh, I'm sorry if that's the perspective that we left. It was a great episode. Anybody who hasn't, anybody who hasn't listened to it, should definitely go back. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's awesome, and so I'm glad to have you back. Um, and yeah, hey, uh, I guess before we get into the the real um, nut meat of the podcast, I don't know. Um, hey, any any um, updates that you want to share? Uh, Nathan, since last time you were on the show. So late 2020, mm. nothing much has happened since then, has it? Um, so <laughs> since <laughs> since late 2020, well, there's probably a couple more books awesome. I can plug. And um, so um, late last year, put out a book that has some bearing on this particular discussion for today called A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. And um, also across this year, I've actually done a podcast series which has been put out on Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices concurrently. I should have talked to you guys as well. Mm. Um, but interviewing a bunch of the really good people that contributed chapters to that book and some really great discussions uh, with some of those people. Um, going deep into you know, how Adventist faith can respond to, uh, recognises... And actually, then, in the best of who we are, can can work to on the big project of undoing racism in our world. And that's been a pretty exciting project that I've been working on now for, well, three years or so. Mm. Wow. And if I could quickly shout out, I believe it was uh, Adventist Record Live. You um, did a little bit of a spot a uh, couple, I'm, I'm, I want to say a couple months ago. It may, may have been even less time than that. 
um, talking mm. through some of the themes of the book. So that's a good one to check out as well. Um, yeah, with with my co-editor, um, Dr. Murray Jackson from Laris Lassieri University, and he's just been a good man to work with on this project and had the opportunity to do all sorts of speaking in relation to that particular project, um, popping up on uh, different places around, you know, different Zoom calls and discussion meetings and things like that all around the world on that topic because it has resonated quite, you know, to be honest, I've been pleasantly surprised with how well the book has been received and sold and engaged with and the discussions that have come off it has been really, really good. Mm. Mm. So that's um, Our House on Fire. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Available now. <laughs> Yeah, I actually um, <laughs> where where all good books yeah. are sold. <laughs> I um yeah, I, I was at a minister like all the we have like a national pastors meeting. Um, so all the pastors in Australia, we do it like once every mm-hmm. five years. Um, and we had it at the beginning of this year, which was mm. cool. And yeah, your book, I think they gave. Well, I can't remember exactly how it worked, but I remember there was a lot of us, if not all of us, that got a free copy of your book and a couple of others. And um, yeah, it was interesting, even just hearing like it was cool seeing that sort of thing, like just being talked about amongst other pastors and having that um, as a conversational standpoint because obviously like there's differing views and uh, but what I like about about that book um, mm. is just I guess it is it is a lot of differing views like it's all these different essays from really insightful people but I guess the, the way it all comes mm. together super interesting so um, yeah definitely would encourage people mm. to check it out uh, yeah really challenging challenging read but in a good way if that makes sense. <laughs> Mm. yeah yeah no i mean it's a difficult topic and you know how do you talk about it and yeah and to some degree it grew out of conversations that uh, murray jackson and myself were having already and we said we need to do something about this you know in beginning in late 2020 in the aftermath of uh, the murder of george floyd and black lives matter protests around the world and some of those things um but also that strong belief that actually at its best adventism and adventist faith has something meaningful to contribute to those kind of discussions in the world. And one of the fascinating things that we've seen in the response to that book has been people beyond Adventism who have seen the value in, hey, this is a unique contribution to an important social issue, and both on personal levels, but even, you know, there are universities um, in different places that have some connection to the book. Uh, where in even one or two non-Adventist universities that are using this as a, you know, readings in class, you know, for um, various things. So that's pretty cool um, to Mm. see that kind of engagement with it and to be reminded that our faith, when we talk about things in the wider world, when we bring the best of our faith to them, we actually have something meaningful to contribute. And I think... We need to be sometimes less focused on what we think we need to tell people and more how can we draw from the best of our faith to make a contribution to things that people uh, already care about and engaged with. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. Well, on that topic, um, I think this is the perfect opportunity to transition <laughs> to our our subject matter for the episode, uh, and that, I mean, you'll have already read the title of the episode, so you know what you're getting yourself in for. Um, we are talking about the voice to parliament. Now, for our international crowd, which is uh, quite a few um, burn the haystackers or haystack burners, or I don't know what we call our fans, but uh, either way, 
This might be a little bit of a an arcane thing. They might not quite understand, but those of us who are living uh, particularly in the South Pacific, uh, Australia, obviously, this has sort of been an inescapable part of our lives for the better part of the last six months to a year in terms of the news cycle, at least. And obviously, for many Indigenous Australians, this is... Um, that this has been in in their conscience for a long time, far far longer than that. Um, now we're not going to make any assumptions or claims here about uh, your ability as a as a historian, Nathan. Um, but <laughs> I uh, I know that you do have a particular interest in this topic, and this is meant to be a I suppose a conversation for us to invite you in, dear listener. Uh, irrespective of where you fall on the political spectrum. And obviously, this has become an extremely politicized issue. Uh, There has been a a lot of things said, a lot of ink spilled, a a lot of uh, TikTok uh, video times wasted on varying viewpoints, some of them helpful, some of them not so much. But maybe it would be a helpful thing to start, Nathan, for you to tell us a little bit about, I suppose, where this is coming from, why there has been a perception of a need for a voice to parliament. In other words, however you want to go about it, what has precipitated this and why are we even having this conversation on the national stage at all? And what is it for those overseas? Yeah, that's a little question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So firstly, the discussion that's happening right at the moment is the constitutional process that Australia has to go through if it wants to change its constitution, its founding document. Um, The Constitution of Australia was drafted in the 1890s and Australia became an independent nation in 1901. And since that time, that document actually sets out the process by which you have to go through if you want to change it. And since that time, there's been 44 referenda held and of those, only eight have passed. So it's a, it's a difficult process, and it should be. You know, a document, a constitution is an important document. You don't want to make it that you can change it with the, the winds of the day, uh, but you also want to make it that you can change it uh, when it's necessary and when it is helpful to making the country a better place. So the process that it goes through is that it gets uh, a suggested amendment, gets voted through Parliament, then it has to be put to a national vote and that vote has to get a majority support of the entire Australian population and then also majority support in a majority of the states of Australia. So there's six states in Australia, so four, a majority of people in four of the states have to vote for it as well. So that's the kind of double majority that is needed to get something like this through. Uh, in this particular context, and I'll, you know, I can just drop in here, you know, back in my days as a law student, because that is one of the um, backgrounds that I bring to this. Um, Thirty years ago, when I was a law student, <laughs> um, there was a, a court case uh, called Marbo versus the State of Queensland um, that was, uh, for the first time, recognised legally that there had been Indigenous people living in Australia before European settlement or European colonisation. You know, we all learnt in primary school in Australia that you know, the first fleet arrived in Australia on, in 1788. Um, and 
up until 1992, the legal assumption about everything, you know, that underlied everything, including the Constitution, was that there weren't actually Indigenous people in Australia before then. Now, that's before 1788. Now, you know, of course, that's not true. You know, nobody's arguing that, you know, they arrived in 1803 or anything like that. Um, but it's never been officially recognised. And so there has been this movement, particularly since 1992, and uh, it was part of a referendum in 1999 as part of Australia voted on whether it should become a republic. But there was a second question in that referendum, which was, do we recognise our Indigenous people in the preamble to the Constitution? And that got voted no, uh, based on the... Um, it's kind of lost within the referendum, sort of republic referendum debate. And so, it, but even that was under the prime ministership of John Howard, and he became back in, he, he kind of continued to have this interest in this project. And in 2007, he again committed to, you know, this is something we really need to do as a nation. Now, there was a change of government, he didn't get around to doing that. And uh, in 2010, there was a working group established to start working through what can we do with this? Uh, how can we recognise our Indigenous people? Uh, there was various processes that were worked through at that point and another change of government. And in 2015, there was a meeting of some key Indigenous leaders, about 30 or 40 of them, uh, with the then Prime Minister Tony Abbott and the opposition leader uh, at the time. And they said, OK, we want to move forward with this, and and they, but how are we going to do it? And is one of the key questions that came out of that is that we don't just want a kind of symbolic re recognition. We want there to be an actual functional mechanism that can not only recognise our in Indigenous peoples, that they were here first and they have an ongoing um, custodianship of our land, but also that there would be a mechanism by which they could address some of the specific issues that and continuing disadvantage that our Indigenous communities have. And there's some pretty significant things when you look at, uh, like the Closing the Gap reports that suggest that life expectancy for Australia's Indigenous people is more than 10 years less than the general population. Uh, incarceration rates for our Indigenous people are 12 times higher than the general population. It's the highest incarceration rate of any people group in the world. And these are some of the chronic disadvantages that are, or, or yeah, situations of dis disadvantage that are experienced by Indigenous people. So as a result of that meeting in 2015, there was a pro consultation process set up that there were 13 regional consultation groups that uh, met over a period of time across the country over the following couple of years. And then in 2017, there was a constitutional convention that was convened with representatives of Indigenous peoples uh, at Uluru in the centre of Australia. And that led, gave rise to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, um, which has kind of been the document that then uh, continued to say, well, how do we recognise um, our Indigenous peoples in a meaningful way? And so that's the document that has now led, after a quite a few other review processes and working groups and parliamentary committees and Senate inquiries and all of these things and another change of government um, that have led us to the referendum today. And so one of the key things when we get to actually looking at what the referendum question is, is simply 
that the question there is drawn from a single sentence of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So we get distracted, even some of the debaters being distracted about, you know, what is the Uluru Statement from the Heart and how big is it and all these things. We're not even voting on the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We're voting on one sentence within it, which simply says, you know, we ask to be recognised by the people of Australia by the mechanism of a, of a voice to Parliament. And that's where we've got to. That was an extensive history. Thank you. <laughs> that was really good. I wasn't like, I was like, man, you said that like all the stuff in your head. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I've, I've bored you into no, silence. I'm yeah. like, oh, that was good. awesome. I was like, wow, you just like <laughs> shot through all of that. That was so good. Um, yeah. Cool. So just to, just to clarify again for our overseas listeners and I guess maybe some of our, um, hmm. our, local listeners who maybe haven't been paying as much attention, which is fine. I get it. We're all busy. Uh, yeah. So, mm. at the moment, there's going to be a referendum, which is like a national vote all around Australia, and we're voting on a particular change to the constitution, which, like you said, it's a big deal. It's only happened... What did, you, did you say? 43 yep. times? 44 times? 44. We've voted on 44 okay, questions. Yep. Some some referendums have had multiple questions to talk about, but there's been 44 attempted amendments to the Constitution and eight of them have passed in the wow. previous mm. pretty Pretty low pass rate, which, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a difficult well, thing to yeah, do. Well, yeah, I mean, like trying to mm. rally. I mean, it's hard enough to get a small group of people to, to change something, let alone getting <laughs> the whole country <laughs> to change something. Um, so... Yes, <laughs> it makes makes sense. Well, and interestingly, in the history of it, one of those part one of those that passed was recognizing Indigenous people uh, as part of the constitution in 1967, and that's was the that more than 90 percent of the Australian population voted for that at that time, and that was a very because previously the constitution had actually said that Indigenous people weren't oh. included. Uh, in the in the modern Australian nation, and there was a couple of provisions where it basically said the federal government is not allowed to make laws that affect Indigenous yeah. people, and that was taken out. And um, yeah, kind of the assumption behind the constitution, in as it was drafted in the eighteen nineties, is that Indigenous peoples were not going to be part of modern Australia. You know, it's the wow. it's the kind of the assumption of colonisation that. You yep. will either assimilate or you will be exterminated. And even the language that was used in the early 20th century was talking about, you know, the care or the protection, to use that in uh, inverted qu quotes, um, you know, was to basically about, and this, this is language that was used in the documents of the day, to smooth the pillow of a dying race and that mm. they would die out. And that was government policy, effectively, for at least the first half of the 20th century. And, and so when we got to 1967, we had to say, well, actually, the, our Indigenous people are here and they're still here. And so there are some things that we need to coordinate and recognise them in some different ways. But still, it actually means that the, where there were some negative statements about Indigenous people in the original Constitution, now there are no statements about Indigenous people in the Constitution. And so the actual um, proposed amendment is to add a new section to the constitution that will uh, recognise Indigenous people as the First Nations of Australia and then 
to set up this uh, mechanism subject to Parliament and for the Parliament to have the power to set up this uh, mechanism to uh, to have that kind of consult consultative uh, body that would rep represent and give advice on Indigenous issues. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Nathan, because I think most of us probably don't really think about the fact that uh, you know the white Australia policy existed and that it was very real. Um, you know, mm. I, I feel very privileged that as a young kid, my parents thought it was appropriate to show me um, the Rabbit Proof Fence film. You know, mm. you know, materials like that, which really, I think, especially in our cultural moment that we're in right now, we're kind of mm. at a point where any any pointing out of racism or, you know, any any of these things that are negative that we've done in the past is kind of like, well, I, it's, it's met with a lot of resistance. Like, how dare you make me feel bad for something my ancestors did or, or whatever the case may be. And, and that's, that's a, that's a, that's a feature of many of our race relations conversations all around the world, not just here in Australia. Yeah. Um, I want to just quickly drill down on the, mechanism that is being proposed to be set up because uh, I think there's a there's also an assumption that this is something special and unique that only Indigenous people are going to be able to speak to parliamentarians in this context. Mm. Um, but I think you know, the vast majority probably might assume that that's the case, but would you be able to kind of take us through who has a voice to parliament currently? Like in terms of <laughs> the the people in Australia or the corporations or the associations or whatever, this, this mechanism that is being proposed to be set up, is this unique or are there already people or entities in our country that are kind of doing what is being proposed to be done, but representing their own people? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, there's not a lot of them that I can name off the top of my head, but there are actually consultative mechanisms like this that are already in place for lots of different issues and industries and focus groups and special interests. Just as one very generic example, we have an organization in Australia called the Productivity Commission. And it's a basically a government supported think tank, a group of people that are employed to give advice to the government on how to make the economy of Australia more productive. And sometimes they will commission reports that they'll give to government and say, here's an idea. Sometimes the government will go to them and say, hey, we've got a question. What if we did this? What do you think the outcome of this would be? And so there are organizations like that, like the Human Rights Commission, like so many other advisory bodies that the government has all around it, uh, but that are often very focused on a particular topic or issue, and there are hundreds of them. Um, that's the way our government works effectively. Uh, and so I think that this is actually not a new idea. Uh, I think it's also not a new idea because a lot of other organisations already have Indigenous voices, uh, mechanisms within them. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is one. We have the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Ministries uh, that is focused on particularly on ministering to Indigenous people. We run a, a Bible college that is set up to support and uh, particularly train Indigenous pastors. Uh, we have these special kind of focus on a group with special needs. 
uh, and at times the you know the Atsim leadership will advise the leadership of the church on how do we respond to this in a way that is sensitive towards our indigenous peoples? How do we, re- you know, how can we, you know? So this is a this is a mechanism that is recognised in many different. You know, the National Rugby League has a has an indigenous voice organisation within it. Um, so a lot of organisations see the value of it. A lot of government uh, topic, you know, areas of special interest within government have those kind of advisory bodies already set up. And for those that argue that, you know, it's wrong to treat people differently for different needs, you know, are they the people that are protesting about the, the small percentage of people that actually need ramps to get into public buildings because they're in wheelchairs? Or do we recognise that actually to cater to people who need that extra access to get into that building is actually a really good thing? You know, one of the challenges for Indigenous people in Australia is that it, they're only 3 to 4% of the population. And so, you know, that's a very small group within the larger Australian society. Uh, and then take another step is that, and this was a study that I came across recently, only 17% of the non-Indigenous population of Australia have interacted socially with Indigenous people in the last uh, year. Wow. And so the, re- wow. the reality is that most Australians don't know an Indigenous person <laughs> and that that's a really limited, um, you know, so we need to, it's not even that all of us have those connections with Indigenous people. And I think some of us within the church actually have more opportunities to, because we recognise Indigenous people as a part of our family. And so we might interact with them in the context of, you know, worship or uh, church events or some of these kind of uh, places. But most Australians don't have that privilege. And, you know, this is why it's important for us to actually have very intentional mechanisms for us to be able to hear their voices. Mm. Wow. Um, talk to us about the, I mean, don't, you don't need to, you know, define Webster's Dictionary of an advisory body, but this is, this is the thing that I think <laughs> a lot of people get stuck on. What does it mean for some entity to be advisory? Because I think that this is potentially a sticking point for some people about the power that could potentially be leveraged and what it actually means for a voice to parliament to uh, consult on on uh, issues pertaining to Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders. Yeah, so the first aspect of it is that it's actually sent out in the proposed amendment to the constitution. And it talks about how Parliament has the authority uh, to make a law to set up an advisory body. This advisory body will then, in turn, advise Parliament on laws that relate to issues uh, that affect Indigenous peoples, and that then this will be an ongoing part of you know the Australian experience and how the Australian Parliament can actually do a better job at responding to the specific needs of this. You know, chronically disadvantaged community, and and also one that holds a special place in Australia's history as the first uh, peoples of of the land. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with treating people specially and getting special interest. You know, some of the anti-referendum uh, uh, or the no campaigning has been talking about. You know, Indigenous people already get all these things given to them. 
which may or may not be true, certainly not in the ways that it has been portrayed by some. Uh, but the reality is that many people would agree that the system isn't working particularly well. And so this is an opportunity for Indigenous peoples to actually be given greater responsibility to uh, direct some of these things. And mo the Indigenous people that I've had the opportunity to talk with and to work with in this context, yeah, it's about getting services to the level grassroots in communities where there are you know, just really significant issues around health and education and uh, social fabrics and all of these things that really, that's the focus of this. And so not only is there this kind of a constitutional mandate that a government needs to prioritise this more than it has in the past, there is also a political pragmatic to it that I think, you know, for all the different variations that have been given in relation to this, you know, this discussion, is simply that the voice will have credibility as much as it addresses the key needs of its community, of its constituents. So when it's talking about issues like health and education, and community well-being, then the government would be, you know, the government has a kind of a imperative to actually listen, because if they're giving good advice and setting out ideas for good programs and good interventions and, uh, you know, that's a loaded word, but good uh, initiatives that can actually grow Indigenous communities and Indigenous well-being, then the government, of course, will listen to that, because if they're good ideas, they should be listened to. But if they are starting to give advice on whether Australia should buy nuclear submarines, the government <laughs> is quite entitled to ignore that. And, 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 and to turn that around the other way, there's also a political imperative or pragmatic imperative there of if, if the government continues to ignore good advice from uh, the, the Indigenous voice, then there's a political ramification to that. That's where one of the reasons that you might vote for a different government, so that they would actually do better on these topics. So this would this by setting it up in the constitution, it creates a constitutional mandate for prioritising this at a, at a better level. But at the same time, there's this political pragmatic kind of reality to it all that it's in everybody's interest to actually make this work as best as it possibly can for the issues that it is intended to uh, address. Hmm. Yeah, I I was watching a, a video about this recently. Um, you have to be careful what you I watch. <laughs> no, I know, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like... No, but it was, it was just talking about how, like, why why this should go... Like, why this needs to be constitutional rather than just, like, something mm. that governments um, set mm. up themselves, I guess. And they were yeah. saying it, it's sort of because they've tried to set this sort of thing up before but it kind of keeps like rising and, and falling because yeah. of the governments um, surrounding it, I guess. Yeah. Um, do, can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, like, I guess the, the reason for this being, because I guess to, I'm just thinking like if somebody is, is overseas, they might be thinking like an advisory body sounds like a great idea, but like, why would it go like in a constitution? That seems like a mm. massive mm. Um, deal. Well, partly, the, the firstly and primarily, this is actually a process of recognition and the mechanism is the process by which we do the recognition. So the recognition needs to be in the constitution and most of the politicians, wh whichever way they might be arguing, actually recognise the importance of recognition. But mm. our, our Indigenous people then have specifically asked that the recognition take the form 
of a practical mechanism that can help some of the really significant issues that need to be addressed. So the first thing is simply because that is what our Indigenous people asked for. Um, you know, that's a really good reason for me to actually seriously consider that it's not. this isn't a political um, stunt. This has been something that's the longest-running law reform process in the history of the Australian nation. And through that process, a broad consultation process and all these other reviews and inquiries and working groups and whatever, we've got to this point of a relatively simple request saying this is how we would like to do this better. And so that's one reason is that's what's been asked for. Uh, but getting back to the history, in 2003, I interviewed uh, a guy by the name of Lionel Quartermain, who was an Indigenous person from North Queensland and a Seventh-day Adventist church member. And he'd recently been elected as a commissioner for ATSIC, um, which was the government's advisory and administrative body for Indigenous people at that time. I interviewed him in 2003 for an article that was published in Adventist Record. Um, and I recently went back and looked it up because it was actually 20 years ago this month. Hmm. And he was... He was talking about how important it was for there to be a voice to government to talk about these important issues of health and education and community well-being and all of these things, and that how he as a Seventh-day Adventist and a person of faith was you know, privileged to be able to represent his people in doing this, that he wanted to sit down with the government and really try and make some practical progress on this. At the time, he was the acting uh, chairman of ATSIC, the acting national leader for ATSIC, um, now, months later, ATSIC was abolished by the Howard government at the time. Um, there had been some issues around ATSIC. You know, the, the previous chairman that Lionel was acting as the, um, was acting chairman because the other guy was being investigated because of some really bad improprieties. Um, and that kind of really tarnished the reputation of ATSIC. There were issues around it. There was complications with it. Uh, but Indigenous people that I talk to today actually look back at that at saying that was when it was best for us because there was a really centralised, organised body that was prioritising this in the government's thinking and was you know we were really making some strides in addressing some of these things. It was convenient for the government of the day to simply abolish it rather than try and fix it. Mm. And so within months of this really great chat that I'd had with this guy who was seeking to lead it, you know, and to lead it faithfully, you know, something that he saw as a way he could serve his people and, and the Australian nation, and then it was gone, and there's been nothing like it since. So 20 years of, of kind of rattling around with no coherent and certainly no collaborative strategy to do this uh, across successive governments. And so one of the things going back in, further into the history has been that each time government changes, kind of the Indigenous people have to start again in making their case to the new Minister for Indigenous Affairs, um, you know, and building those relationships. And so the idea would be that this, while, it, while a new government could make modifications, if it's working, why would they? And secondly, because it's in their interest to make it work. And so everybody would, there would be more continuity. Um, you know, we have elections only every three years in Australia. So that can be a pretty short turnaround from one government to the next if, if that's how the, the politics goes. And so this is something that 
has a long can take a longer term view than just the immediate government and uh, can work in some more constructive ways. Hmm. No, that's a that's a good perspective. Uh, I I want to potentially and uh, maybe this is dangerous uh, territory that I want to verge into, but uh, I I want to I want to be as fair as possible to uh, the the whole discourse, not just one part of the discourse. And and I think it's fairly obvious, um, you know, if you've seen Nathan's social media activity and some of the stuff that he's been working on the last little while. It's you know Nathan is is advocating for a yes vote and you know we we shouldn't be you know that is what it is and I had an opportunity to speak to Pastor Luke Stewart who is Indigenous himself he's Indigenous and Maori uh, which is mm. a super cool uh, combination but he's <laughs> the he's the director for ATSIM in South Queensland conference and um, another shameless plug i've already plugged record live so if you want to listen to my other podcast <laughs> signs of the times radio um mm. then uh, you can go and listen to that episode with with pastor luke uh he advocates for a yes vote as well but he also and i think interestingly as a indigenous person um showed a lot of empathy uh, in our conversation and in subsequent conversations that i've had with him since about people who are genuinely concerned whether that's through reading or listening or watching misinformation or uh, you know their political leanings, but I want to I want to I, I guess give a little bit of credibility and credence to the whole discourse. So, with that in mind, Nathan, is there credibility or is there a case for the no vote? I, I hope you don't mind me sort of uh, <laughs> mentioning you. <laughs> You, you just said before we turned on the recording that you don't mind somebody voting no, but it's got to be for the right reasons, not for a mm. dumb reason. So maybe that is the place to start. <laughs> is there a good reason to say no? Um, and if there is, what are those reasons? Well, firstly, the, one, of the, one of the sillinesses of a referendum is that you take a really complicated issue or a really complicated set of issues. You take 250 years of national history. You take uh, all these other competing interests and influences, and you condense them down into a single yes/no question. You know that's going to be a gross simplification of the issue. Um, so they're really, I mean, you can object to it in so many different ways. Um, either way, wherever you might lean into it, you can say, well. This is a pretty simplistic um, a way to approach these issues, but that's where we've got to remember that we're actually doing—we're actually not solving all our indigenous issues. We're voting on changing a boring old constitution. That's what we're doing, and so that actually is a yes/no question. And all, so many other of the issues will be are beyond the scope of a referendum question, and they need to be addressed in those other ways before or after the referendum. But we're not going to solve them that day writing that's yes yes or no on, on the ballot paper. And so what we are doing in voting yes or no is simply voting about changing the wording in a very obscure document that most Australians have never read. And that's a really challenging thing um, to take all this complexity and boil it down to something as, as basic as that. So there are... 
I guess one of my frustrations, and I think many people have seen these frustrations, is how poorly the public debate has been handled, uh, particularly in the last weeks and months uh, this year. One of the things that I see as so frustrating in this situation is simply that this has been a bipartisan project, as in supported by both major political parties for most of its life. And most of the work was done under the previous coalition government. And with the change of government after the election, the current government said, well, let's do something about this. And up until just a few months ago, this was a bipartisan project simply to do something better for our Indigenous people in Australia. And then as an act, I would describe it, of political betrayal um, and political opportunism, a stunt, a chance to try and score a political point. Um, you know, the party that is the opposition party at the moment, you know, basically threw all their indigenous people under the bus and the you know and said we're going to oppose this, even though it's something that they've done most of the work on, and that's why the um, shadow indigenous affairs spokesperson quit the day that happened, and the previous their previous minister for indigenous affairs quit. Uh, at the, quit the party at the same time. So this shouldn't be a debate. It should be, and, and this is one of the reasons why the Yes campaign has actually struggled so much this year, is because the negotiations all happened last year. All the discussions and planning was put in place for this to be a bipartisan project. We would, we would all get together and celebrate how important our Indigenous peoples were to our identity and history and culture. And so that's one of the really messy things in this situation is that it, it's more about politics than it is about Indigenous issues and the indigenous, and certainly about Indigenous peoples. However, there are cases that, to be made uh, for you know, asking questions about it. And there, are, there is a radical no case, which is simply that this will actually, you know, this isn't good enough, even that in trying to shoehorn Indigenous peoples into, uh, you know, white colonial colonialist constitution is actually a diminishment of Indigenous peoples, because they have their own sovereignty and they have they should be outside and beyond our, you know, the the Australian Constitution. That's the kind of the radical no. Then there's a a, a kind of a no. Will will this actually change anything? It's largely symbolic. You know what. You know, we're going to through all this trouble and all this trauma and all this stress. You know, is it actually going to change anything in the in the real world of a remote community? Uh, so that I think there's legitimate questions to be asked there. Um, and that's you know, I actually believe there's importance in symbolism. And any good Adventist who's been to a Revelation seminar knows the importance of symbolism. Um, <laughs> so we we actually believe in symbolism, um, yeah. but. But beyond that, there are questions, I think, legitimate questions about, you know, I think there's a lack of understanding about treating disadvantaged peoples uh, unequally, you know, that kind of thing that we'd be divided by race in that kind of way, that one group mm -hmm. gets privileges that others don't. I think that's largely a misunderstanding, both misunderstanding of law and ethics. Um in the last big research project I did in my law degree many years ago was on the rightness and appropriateness of positive discrimination to help mm. 
people with chronic disadvantage uh, people groups and particularly I was talking in that context of indigenous land rights and just why that actually makes sense why that's the right and good thing to do uh, but I do think that there are you know getting to looking at some of the I mean so we get to the actual no case you know after all of that we get to the what is the no case and you look at the official um, uh, referendum booklet that was distributed to every Australian home sets out the yes case and the no case and to be honest I think there is a better no case than something bad might happen and you know that seems to be kind of the core argument that is made there and I've read critiques of the the no case in that booklet that just says hey Australia actually deserves a better argument for no than this and that we don't you know that that there are better ways to address the issue, that there are other things we should be doing. And I actually agree with those things. I think there are other things we should be doing. But this is one thing that we can do now, one very simple, perhaps small thing that we can do in this particular moment uh, to, take a, to take a step in the right direction. So some of the other... So to be honest, I struggle with what the no case is beyond that. Um, other than conspiracy theories, ignorance, confusion, and fear, um, mm. you know, I just don't find a strong rational case for no. And mm. you know, there. So I, I'm sympathetic with people that think that it doesn't go far enough. But then I turn around and say, well, look at the trouble we're having, even just going as far as this is, which isn't very far. Um, and I'm sympathetic to those who are concerned about you know where it might lead because they don't have the information of what is actually proposed you know the one of the th one of the kind of op option sorry one of the uh, questions that have has often been raised in the last few months is simply we don't have much detail on what you know what this would actually mean what would the voice look like how would it function the reality is there's a 271-page document that sets out the design principles for the voice. Now, that's kind of hard to peddle in public uh, mm -hmm. because the more details you put there, the, um, the more it will be criticised. And very, the, the research that came out just a couple of weeks ago is that only 15% of Australia's population have read the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is a single page uh, controversially um but but 271 pages is probably a little bit beyond us beyond most of us and i haven't read all those 271 pages but if you simply uh, google voice design principles you will find a summary of that of what it is intended to be but this also misunderstands the nature of what a constitution is and if you go to section 51 of the constitution there are 39 heads of power that are set out that the government can make laws about and it simply says, you know, the Parliament of Australia can make laws for the peace, order and good governance of the Commonwealth. And then number one, this. Number two, this. And most of these are only two or three words. Some of them are single word. You know, I think it's number 21 that simply says marriage. And so based on that one power, one word, there's a whole raft of, you know, marriage laws about who can, who can marry and what marriage is and uh, family courts and all of these kind of things based on a single word and so there's actually more detail in the constitution leaving the actual um, 
sorry, more detail in the constitutional amendment, leaving the actual details of the voice and what it will be to the parliament of the day. Because one of the things, it's hard to, hard to change the constitution. And so you can't put all those details in and recognize that in 20 years or 50 years time, it might have to operate a little bit differently. So all of this stuff is complicated. And that, you know, one of the things I think that we've seen in this situation, in this uh, community debate, however you want to talk about it, is simply that it's hard to talk about complicated things uh, when you struggle to get people's attention and when it's not a high priority in a lot of people's thinking. It kind of needs to be like, uh, what's the word? Like not, yeah, like you're saying, not too, not too specific, um, yeah. because it just needs to be able to be fle flexible enough to be able to function for the time. But so mm. many people have taken that unspecific, specific, I can't even. What's the word? Specific. I can't say it. Specificity. <laughs> Unspecificness. That's the word. I was like, I can do it. I could hear it in my head, but I couldn't say it. Um, yeah, people have taken that and just run with it, which is yeah, like kind of wild because. They haven't done that with any other part of the constitution, which is, it's been interesting to see. And I like, I mean, I try and be, I guess this is, as a pastor, you, you obviously like, you got to be accepting of everybody, no matter mm. their, their, their views or political alignment or anything like that. And that's part of our church too. Our church is made of a very diverse group yeah. of what, 20 something million people. Like that's just who we are from all different places of the world. Um, and so, it's been interesting to see some of this discourse taking place like both on the media but both even just in our churches. Um, um, so, I guess one thing I'm kind of interested in, we've got a little bit of time left um, and you have touched on this already but I think like what would you say, I guess, like if you could outline a bit of like the intersection between like your your faith or like your Adventist understanding and worldview and like how it's how it's making i guess how it's informing you in this in this issue mm. and, and how you see see this because i think that's what a lot of people would i don't know i I'm, I'm curious about that because just hearing so many people's how faith has impacted how they view certain political whatevers mm. and i think that's what we can do because it's not just recycling what other people are talking about what is it uniquely that our faith brings to a discussion like this and i have three three points as any good rant should have i mean sermon um <laughs> uh, first one is that in the 1890s Adventists were very involved in helping shape the Australian constitution and um, that's something that is sometimes forgotten but is actually recognised in you know academics who study Australian constitutional history is that but for Adventists section 116 of the Australian constitution wouldn't be there and section 116 talks about freedom of religion and that, of course, has been historically a really strong Adventist focus. And the story goes back to Kellyville, 1897. And a couple of guys were picked up for farming on Sunday. You know, they were doing work out in, outside on their property on Sunday. And they got arrested. One of them was fined. The other one was sentenced to the stocks. Um, and the only reason he wasn't put in the stocks is because they couldn't find any stocks in Sydney in 1897. <laughs> 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 but knowing that the constitutional debates were going on at that time the Adventists of those days there was about 2,000 Adventists in Australia at that time said hey we want to make sure that this isn't a religious constitution we don't want to be 
Uh, we don't want there to be religious laws that might cause our persecution or make it hard for us to practice or share our faith in the future. Um, and so a lot of the churches at the time were pushing for something in the preamble to the Constitution going talking about how Australia was set up by the power of Almighty God or something like that, as a lot of those old documents tended to do. And so the Adventists set up this campaign. They were involved with public meetings. They collected uh, signatures on a petition. They uh, st even started a magazine that ran for about three years, you know, the Southern Sentinel of Religious Liberty or something like that, um, that was all focused on this com campaign to let's have a make sure that the Australian Constitution is secular. And they kind of failed because God is in the preamble, but they succeeded with Section 116, which set up this uh, situation of making this case where um, the government can't outlaw religion, the government can't set up or establish religion, and that religious adherence cannot be a qualification for um, jo basically jobs in the federal government. Um, so three, three kind of prongs to it. And so the remarkable thing is that because Adventists were so against um, religion being in the Constitution and, and faith being involved in politics, they faithfully got very political. You know, for 2,000 church members, they collected 7,000 signatures for this particular petition and, you know, obviously had this influence in shaping, you know, what would be, you know, it's really the one thing that is a human right that is directly recognised in Australia's Constitution. And that was the Adventist contribution. So I think there's something in looking at our constitutional history, we can say, well, actually, we should be involved in shaping this for good. So that's, that's the first, first thing. Second thing is, when we go back to look at the silence of the Constitution in relation to our Indigenous people, and even the fact that they weren't recognised legally as being part of Australia or, or pre-existing in Australia, that goes back to the 15th century and some papal decrees where, they, where the European powers were theologically empowered to go out and colonise the world. Uh, and basically, where there weren't Christians, they could take their lands, enslave the people, and exploit everything and everybody as much as they wanted. And the language that was used there was the Latin terra nullius, that it's an empty land if there aren't Christians and civilised, you know, their definition, their definition of civilization there when the European colonisers arrived. And so that is the theological uh, assumption that underlies the silence of our constitution. So I actually think from an Adventist perspective, we can look at that and say, we have a contribution to make here because we believe that every person is created in the image of God, that this was a theological heresy of the past. Um, we've looked at other issues from the historic church and said, we need to set these right. So the doctrine of discovery uh, is something that we need to address and we need to say, well, there's some reformation work to be done here. What could we do about it? And one of the things we can do about it is actually uh, um, help to amend a historic silence and a historic wrong uh, that is part of the legal framework of our country. And then I think the third thing is simply that when I was spending some time earlier in the year working on this and developing some documents around it, and there was a series of articles that was published in record based on the work that I did at that time, I was reading through the Uluru Statement from the Heart and looking at how it describes the 
chronic disadvantage of our Indigenous people, and it talked about you know, health and incarceration, the breakdown of communities. And it just so struck me that when you read Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, where he got up and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to release the captives, uh, to set the oppressed free, to heal the blind, all of these things. All of those things are almost echoed very directly in the disadvantage of our indigenous peoples. And so when we see that even they are you know, almost using that similar language to talk about, you know, these are the things that are plaguing our community. These are the things that we're asking for assistance and a voice to be able to step up on and to address. You know, our response with listening, you know, with respect, responding with compassion and even standing up for justice, it all gets to me to the point of saying, well, this should be a simple, straightforward thing for us to be able to uh, reflect upon, uh, to do the work, you know, to answer some of the questions and fears that we might have, to, you know, sit down and listen to some well-informed people talking about these things, to, um, to do the reading, to, you know, go back and have a look at the Constitution and celebrate Section 116, but actually look at how the Constitution works and where we fit. And I recognise that not all of us can do that, but to look out, look for good sources that can be well informed in these discussions, and to say, well, you know, to re once again to break it down to a really simple question and say, well, which of the two outcomes of this referendum do we think is more likely to move us a step towards greater justice for the, the indigenous peoples of Australia? And I think that that's not a hard question because yes, is an opportunity for difference, and as you know, some Indigenous voices that I've been working with have said, we know what no looks like. No is the status quo. Yes is an opportunity to work together towards something better and something different. No, that's really good. Um, I, uh, I really appreciate that perspective, uh, contextualizing our history and contextualizing this whole, this whole debate, because I think that it's so easy to get caught up in the rhetoric of the moment that completely ignores everything that's come before uh, to ignore the fact that, as you've already mentioned, that up until the last couple of months or the last year, this has been a bipartisan project. This has not been a controversial thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, so I, I, I've really appreciated the contextualization um, in this whole issue because I think that once, like for me at least, seeing all of this that we've discussed so far has really informed like what does the next step look like? And even if it is a no, you know, I mm. think that there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done either way. Um, yeah. And this has been going on for a long time, clearly. <laughs> yeah, and just... these issues, either whichever way the vote goes, this, these issues aren't going away. You know, we'll still have to yep. look at them again on October 15 and October 15 next year. And and so it will go. Like some of these, because they're so entrenched, because there's so much history to them, they're not going to be turned around quickly. Um, yeah. And so whether we vote yes or no, the bigger picture should be um, how can we continue to listen and to stand with and support our Indigenous peoples as an act of justice and compassion and solidarity. And then, 
you know, whichever way we vote, it actually matters. And so work out why you want to vote whichever way you want to vote for good reasons. You know, mm. not just, you know, some, some really bad TikTok clips that seem terribly <laughs> popular at the moment. Um, but look for some good reasons and some good thinking. Um, you know, even the work that I did, I read a number of books that were simply about the Uluru Statement from the Heart and where it came from. Um, you know, that's the kind of work that I've put into it so that I can speak because I, I care about this issue. I have friends who are Indigenous people. I've had opportunities to work with them in different places. And that is why it matters to me. Um, I also think that there's a real advantage to us as Australia, as a nation, to embrace our Indigenous culture and background more and that Australia could be a richer and both of you guys have lived in New Zealand where it has much more engagement with its indigenous culture um, yeah there you know it's not in New Zealand isn't paradise despite the hobbits um, <laughs> but it um, yeah there is something really strong in how the cultures are much more integrated there and it mm. gives us New Zealand a unique and a uniqueness that other countries don't have and that Australia yeah. doesn't have. Yeah, the fact that the Treaty of Waitangi was signed such a long time ago in, in you know, relative terms, I suppose, mm. um, really, I think, speaks to even the cultural recognition of the time of yeah. what better uh, relations between cultures, um, colonial powers and Indigenous cultures could look like. Um, Maybe we'll get a treaty one day. Maybe not. Either way, I mean, this is a this is better than than uh, the status quo. So I suppose you know that's that's positive. Mm. Um, look, I I recognise that we are out of time. So Josh, unless there's anything that you would like to touch on before we wrap up, I um, yeah. Oh yeah, I um, it just struck struck me. Um, you know, you mentioned. And I mean, we don't have to dive into this. I think it's just something I wanted to highlight. But you, you, um, I guess, highlighted the, you know, the disadvantages that First Nations people have in terms of like education and incarceration and health, which you know, these are issues that Adventists have always been passionate about. You know, we're so passionate about education, about health, um, and so I guess I just want to encourage all of our listeners to yeah, really prayerfully um, consider this. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, listen, like what Nathan said, listen to good voices <laughs> um, about it. And um, yeah, I don't know. I guess just continue praying for, for this. Like, I mean, it's just so, it just breaks my heart to see like the injustice, injustices that are in our nation. And I mean, this is what we want. We want a fair Australia. And um, so, I guess, yeah, this is just such a big thing. And so, let's continue praying for it and um, yeah, I've just I've really gotten a lot out of today's episode, Nathan. So thank you for all that you've brought the the history, the legal insights. <laughs> um, you know, the, yeah, it's just been it's been really cool. So thank you so much for for your time and for everything you're doing. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And yeah, let me. I think praying for our country at this time is a really good thing to do. Uh, we've done a series of public events that I've been invited to be a part of in different parts of the country, and have some still coming up and. We've finished each of those with simply getting in small groups and praying for our country, praying for our Indigenous mm -hmm. peoples, and praying for our church and its response uh, to this particular time and to these ongoing issues. And 
you know, if somebody needs something to pray for, uh, that's something for the next few weeks to really turn your attention to. Awesome. This has been such a treat. Um, yeah. And uh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. And um, yeah. Hey, let's. Uh, I guess we'll see what happens. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nathan. And um, everybody, stay awesome. Stay be wonderful. That is Josh, Jesse, and Nathan. Out. Thank <laughs> you.